Nathan and I will be reading selected verses from Romans 6. I urge you sometime today or this week, go back and read the whole chapter. It's all of 23 verses, but that would have gotten a little long at this point. Paul in Romans often uses a pattern of writing called diatribe. It's an ancient rhetorical pattern, often using hyperbole also. It's used in teaching and in philosophy where the writer-speaker carries on a dialogue with an imaginary conversational partner. An object or question is posed to which the author-speaker responds, thereby advancing the argument. Listen to the word of God. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ who was raised from the dead by the glory of God, so we too might walk in newness of life. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one of whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of death is sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life and Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me while I repeat the words of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, it's the 4th of July weekend, and I've been wrestling and wondering how to approach a sermon on this weekend particularly here in Virginia, where so much of the United States history is tied up. Just a few miles at another church in Church Hill, on March 1775, Patrick Henry declared, Give me liberty or give me death. The nearby historical Jamestown and Williamsburg settlements continue to remind us of our history and struggle for independence a place where young and old can get a better glimpse into our nation's history, democracy, privileges, and responsibilities. 
So what does a preacher do on a weekend like this? How does one preach? Well, I believe and know, while I believe and know there is much to repent about our nation's history, such as our nation's original sin, slavery, I also know and realize there is a lot to celebrate. Some preachers ask, do you even bring in the 4th of July, which of course I've just done here. Then on June 16, in the Richmond's Times-Dispatch, as I have been thinking about what to do, I had a hint or a nudge while reading an article about Ken Cuccinelli, our Attorney General, titled, Cuccinelli, Pastors Should Speak Out About Politics. Really? Hmm, and then I had to wonder if Ken Cuccinelli would really like what I have to say, but I won't go there. But reading the article sure got me to thinking. Cuccinelli spoke to a Fredericksburg area clergy group of about 250 pastors at a Christian citizen and godly government breakfast where he urged pastors not to shy away from speaking about candidates and issues. Although he did warn that they had to be careful of outright endorsements that could jeopardize their church's tax-exempt status. Well, I certainly won't want to do that to us. But Cuccinelli, so to speak, started me thinking about Christian citizenship and about our Presbyterian heritage. So here we are, a day before the 4th of July, the celebration of the Declaration of Independence that kicked off our nation's revolution against England, which King George at times referred to as the Presbyterian Revolution. In fact, over 44% of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were men from a Reformed background, either Presbyterians or Congregationalists. Presbyterians then and now speak up about civil law and politics. We aren't exactly known for keeping our mouths shut or our opinions to ourselves. Presbyterians have and continue to pass through the halls of Congress, the Senate, and the Presidency. Our Reformed view of, our reformed view of theology has was intertwined in our move to independence as it continues to be with our views on government and civil life today, whether one is a Democrat or a Republican. If you read the Declaration of Independence and then some of our creeds in the Book of Order, like the Scots Confession, and then delve into, some, some in, delve into John Calvin, our Presbyterian father of theology, you'll pick up on some very familiar language about what to do when government no longer works for the dignity and freedom of people, or when government no longer protects the common people and those in need. This is interesting background about Presbyterians, but still... What was I to do about a sermon? Then our lectionary passages, some of them in June and July, happened to conveniently focus on the book of Romans, on our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Alex will, Alec will continue a series on Romans. 
I thought this was rather a good blend for this weekend. Presbyterians have historically taken their citizenship, civil citizenship, seriously. Yet as Christians, we are called to ask what country or kingdom do we really owe our allegiance to, our free will to? What values do we really ascribe to? Where do we derive our values and ethics? What really shapes us as people who claim to follow Jesus Christ? How do we live then into God's grace, God's favor that accepts us where we are, forgives our sins, walks besides us, and beckons us back when we stray? Let's go back to Romans 6, where Paul tells us that Christ frees us. But what does Christ free us from, and for what? Christ frees us from sin and from the law, but he frees us for something, to live into righteousness, to live for Christ, and discover God's grace. We seem to gain our independence through Christ, but at the same time, we're called to live in dependence with him, with God's righteousness and into grace. How do we live into this freedom from to a freedom for? Paul addresses this by tackling grace, law, and righteousness, things we Christians sure know how to mess up. Paul knew this when he wrote his letter to the early church in its first century. Paul knew he wasn't writing to a perfect church. He wasn't under any delusions. But he also knew what these churches were called to become, living members of the body of Christ in a community. Paul wrote to a church in disagreement and transition on top of facing the challenge of living in the middle of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. Here, Christians declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, going against a government that declared Caesar as Lord and Savior. Paul wrote to a growing church struggling to meld together converts from a wide range of Gentile or pagan backgrounds with those from a Jewish background. They were having trouble accepting each other. They were wondering and arguing about the connection between sin, grace, and the Old Testament laws, among other things. They were trying to determine what the Christian life should look like, who's right, who's wrong, and who holds the power in the midst of people yearning for the message of Christ and God's love. Well, we too live in the world's most powerful nation that often tries to meld religion and government. We too struggle to get along with other Christians, let alone speak to one another at times. We struggle with how we should worship and the sticky questions of what the Bible says on various issues. Some ask, where does the slippery slope start or end on issues of sexuality, pluralism, and Christian orthodoxy concerning the right way to believe. We, too, are surrounded by people hungry for a relationship with God, even if they don't seem to recognize it. 
In Romans 6, Paul addresses some of the early church's questions, such as, if grace is good, why shouldn't we keep on sinning in order to experience more of God's loving grace and forgiveness? If we are no longer under the Old Testament laws, can't we keep on sinning because we're under grace? No, 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 says Paul. You've got it all wrong. You're not supposed to remain in your old life in sin. Just because Jesus Christ has the power to make things right, it's not an invitation to do wrong. Shanthea Monroe tells of when her son was in preschool. He accidentally spilled an entire carton of milk on the floor. Some of us have experienced that. He was devastated, this little boy, and she assured him that everything would be just fine as she mopped it up. Look, she said, now the whole floor is nice and clean. And he brightly said, hey, Mom, maybe I should spill more on the floor. By no means, says Paul, we're moving on. You've been baptized with Christ. A baptism that would have involved a ritual symbolizing of a co-burial with Christ where one's whole body was literally lowered into a pool of water, completely submerged and covered, buried with Christ, and then raised out of the water to a new way of life, a new way of walking in the way of Christ. Here there isn't a litmus test for thinking and believing a certain way, but in walking a new way with Christ who charts a new path for us. In Christ, we are given a new identity. We become citizens of God's kingdom under Jesus Christ's reign. Paul then uses the metaphor of slavery, albeit a harsh and difficult one, but one that the Romans would have instantly recognized as we do too. Paul explains that we are no longer slaves to sin, to other masters that can pull us in. Rather, he says, you've become obedient to God. You are now slaves to righteousness. God's righteousness. In essence, we're freed from the master of sin, but in doing this, we need a new master, God's righteousness seen, witnessed, and experienced through walking in the new way of Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul knows we still sin. We know we still sin. But because Jesus Christ conquered sin and death, we can loose the chains of sin. We've begun the process of sanctification, which is a big word for the process of becoming Christ-like. Instead of focusing on sin, Paul points the reader back to their roots and reminds them that they are walking on a new path under the umbrella of God's grace. Understand, though, Paul isn't implying that the law of God is no longer important. Rather, grace trumps it. Here, our founding theological father, John Calvin, is actually very helpful. Calvin describes God's grace as a twofold grace and follows up with the third use of the law. Simply put, Calvin helps us to see that one 
God's grace alone saves us. It isn't anything we do or deserve. And two, our thankful and natural response should be to live into this grace, God's love and work, and God's love and work towards righteousness. And three, the law is a gift, not something that binds us, but helps us. The law frees us to live into a new life in Christ. God's grace alone saves us. It is nothing we can do or deserve. But in response to that and thankfulness, we respond to living into this grace and God's righteousness. And then the law helps us, helps us to mold us. It's a tool. So what is law? Well, some of us undoubtedly think of the Ten Commandments or perhaps the Torah, which is known as the first books of the Bible, where during the exodus and journey in the wilderness, we read about various details, rules, and regulations of how the people were attempting to live into community, a community that cared for each other. Yes, here one can find examples of rules and outlines for God's justice and mercy. Still, it is, a, it is in trying to exactly follow these rules and other re- regulations that Jesus was so critical of the Pharisees, and to which Paul says we are freed. Many other Christians have gotten hung up on legalism. I myself grew up in an atmosphere where for many years we weren't allowed to swim, shop, do yard work, or homework on Sunday. Some of you probably had experiences like that too, and some of it was probably good. If you couldn't do homework on Sunday, there was no question of going to youth, church and youth group. My son attended a college called Calvin College. The library wasn't open on Sunday. At first, the students were fr- furious, but then it freed them up for time with God and with each other. Christians tend to, but in the process of monitoring specific behaviors and rules, Christians tend to lose sight that the reasons for adhering to certain guidelines is to help us to grow closer to God, not police each other. I like how theologian Mark Stanger explains that Torah or the law is not really law or a list of laws. Rather, it is a template for Exodus living in covenant as God's free and faithful people. It is a pattern of life individually embraced and shared with the community as a guide and goal. In the first covenant, God's people were and are formed by the experience of Exodus and the Torah, the first five books. In our new covenant, the point and departure for Christian living is the Exodus and the new life experience in death and resurrection into baptism, into walking with Jesus Christ. It's in the stories of the Old and New Testament, in the stories and voices of the prophets and Jesus Christ where God's law, justice, and mercy, God's righteousness is revealed and where we get a helpful template. template. Some years ago, around the 4th of July, I had a memorable conversation with Jack Rhoda, a wonderful preacher and theologian who had immigrated from the Netherlands as a fifth-grade boy. 
He said as a young boy, he scarfed up everything he could on United States history. He said he loved it as he studied and learned about his new country, and he still does. Then he looked at me and said, you know, as Christians, we are called to be just as knowledgeable about the history and stories in the Bible as we are with our country's history in order to form our new identity in Christ as people of God. A strong and insightful observation. Scripture, the law, is our guide and tool to our new identity in Christ, as is studying together, worshiping together, and supporting one another as together we work towards God's righteousness. Too often, I think we've lost touch with that way of thinking. We've watered down the importance of our identity as Christian, as Christians, and Paul calls us back to it. Paul does not think that grace frees us from responsible obedience. Rather, grace shapes us into responsible and obedient people. Yes, we're freed by Christ, but we are called to live in dependence with Jesus Christ. Finally, this leads into what Paul is talking about when he refers to God's righteousness and eternal life. Theologian N.T. Wright explains that Paul, as a first century Jew educated as a Pharisee, would have realized that eternal life refers to a coming glory, a a reality to be revealed. But he also would have known that God's righteousness refers to that glory beginning in the here and now. Sure, we're promised eternal life, the icing on the cake, so to speak. But Paul knows God's righteousness is also about fairness, justice, equity, mercy, and that the body of Christ is called to the redemptive action of God's reconciling love, God's shalom. Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4 with a direct quote from Isaiah 61, which Paul would have been familiar with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Paul knows that throughout Christ's ministry, Jesus retells stories about God's righteousness in his parables, sermons, and action. Paul knows and tells us that we have been given the template for true righteousness in Jesus Christ. Christ frees us to respond and to live into God's grace. Freedom from, freedom for. A task that isn't always easy, but in the long run frees us to fully live. This weekend, it's Independence Day, our national holiday. It's a time to celebrate our independence. But it is also a good day for us as people of God to realize that our true freedom comes from our independence with Jesus Christ and the community of Christ. It is first in our citizenship in the kingdom of God where we learn our true identity 
and how to bring about God's peace and shalom in God's world. Living into grace, may it be so. Amen. Please pray with me. May we seek to be God's breath and face and hands to a world in need of grace, knowing that when we lose ourselves in the Spirit, we indeed find ourselves. And may we live in the freedom we have here in America, fully living into grace, into our independence with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and with one another. Amen. Amen.